I'm Jane Day, Centenary Development Enabler for Baptist Together. And I'm Helen Cameron, Research Fellow at the Centre for Baptist Studies at Regent's Park College in Oxford. Together, we're the co-leaders of Project Violet. Welcome to Season 1 of the Project Violet podcast. Project Violet is a research project investigating women's experiences in ministry whilst developing women ministers. We are trying to understand better the theological, missional and structural obstacles women ministers face and identify ways forward. In this first season, we're hoping to introduce you to the history of women's ministry in the Baptist movement and look at some of the language used to discuss women's experiences. Helen and I have been working together on Project Violet since May 2021 to have become even more aware of the different layers that make up Baptist life. Yes, I've learned so much in all the listening we have done to women ministers. I think there are three layers that the project has ended up focusing on. First of all, the everyday language and behaviour we use in church life. Secondly, the accepted ways of doing things. And thirdly, what we believe about the church and role of ministers. We hope that listening to these five episodes will prepare you for when the findings of the project are released in May 2024. Before we introduce our guests on this episode, we should say something about the part that history has played in Project Violet. The obvious question is, who was Violet? the woman after whom the project is named. Violet Hedger was the first woman to study at a college for Baptist ministry, entering Regents Park College in 1919. The centenary of her entry to training was celebrated in 2019, uh, which led to my post as Centenary Development Enabler being established in the same year. It seemed good to acknowledge that connection in naming the project. And because the Angus Library and Archive is located at Regents Park College, we've been able to collaborate with them and hold three online history events during the project. The Reverend Dr Keith Jones has shared his research on Margaret Jarman. Reverend Dr Chris Folk has spoken about his research on Edith Gates, who was the first woman to train in pastorate and he's now published that research. And the Reverend Dr. Ruth Goldborn has looked at the Deaconess movement as an example of women's pioneering. But we are wanting to add to Baptist history and so all the reports and papers from Project Violet will be added to the Angus archives so future generations of Baptists can learn about women's experiences of ministry in the 21st century. So let's introduce our guests. Simon Woodman is the minister at Bloomsbury Baptist Church in London. In 2011, he wrote a booklet setting out the story of women's ministry. This followed a meeting of the Baptist Council in March 2010, when the full inclusion of women in Baptist ministry was affirmed. Our second guest is Andy Goodliffe, who is the minister at Bellevue Baptist Church, Southend. 
and also a lecturer in Baptist history at Regent's Park College, and so a colleague of ours. Andy has written about the more recent history of Baptists and noticed the absence of women in that history. We've asked them to tell the story so far from their perspectives. Simon, perhaps you could start by telling me how you became interested in this topic. Thanks so much, Helen, and thanks for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's really good to be here. So uh, let me tell you a little bit of my story. Um, I've actually been attending a Baptist church since before I was born. And throughout my childhood, the role models for ministry that I encountered were all men. As someone who sensed a very early call to ministry myself, the examples that these godly men set for me were an inspiration and an encouragement. Uh, I could see something of myself in them. Uh, we did sometimes have women preaching, the occasional missionary on furlough, for example, but these were definitely the exception rather than the rule. In our youth group as a teenager, I remember being told that whilst it was okay before God for a woman to preach, there had to be a man in overall charge because that was what was written in the Bible. As I progressed through my teens, I became more and more fascinated by the Bible. I had one of those NIV study Bibles and I poured over the notes in the, at the bottom of the page and, and the maps uh, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do an A-level in RS that focused on the Bible. And all of this paved the way for me to head off to university in Sheffield to do a degree in biblical studies. What I found, as so many do, is that the more you study the Bible, the more you realise that it's a complex old document that God has chosen to reveal Jesus to us. And so I started to discover quite a few things that my youth leader had told me the Bible said might not actually be sustained in the light of a close reading of the Bible itself. Whilst at university, I also met Liz, who has been my wife now for 29 years. As she told me about her experience of church growing up in the Brethren, I started to realise how damaging Christianity can be to women. She was brought up to believe that women must remain silent in church, that they must have their heads covered as a sign of their submission to their husbands, and that they could never be preachers or leaders. All of this because the Bible says so. But I still hadn't experienced any women ministers myself, and I hadn't properly changed my mind from what I'd been told as a child. Anyway, fast forward a few years, and I was a British Baptist church to train for ministry. And I found myself in a class alongside women who were also training. Fairly early on, I remember a conversation with one of them who is thankfully still one of my best friends. I said to her that I wasn't sure whether women could be ministers because of what the Bible says. And she just replied with a laugh, oh, Simon, don't be so ridiculous. You've met one now. You can't deny what God's doing. And I realized that she was right. Like Peter on the rooftop of Cornelius's house, I realised that I had been calling unacceptable what God had already declared acceptable. And that was the day my journey properly began. I had to go back and reread the scriptures again more carefully and with better guides. And I slowly came to realise that part of my ministry was going to be using my power as a man and a straight white man at that to amplify the voices of those who are often not heard in our churches. 
And it all began for me with this change in my convictions about women in ministry. I'm a biblical scholar by discipline and also a bit of a historian. And so I've written a few things over the years to try and help others understand not only how they might read the Bible in ways that affirm the ministry of women, but also to understand our shared history as a Baptist family of both affirming and denying the role of women in our midst. Thank you for that. And thanks for sharing something of your personal story. Um, Andy, can I turn to you now and, and ask how you became interested in the more recent history of the Baptist movement? Um, thank you, Helen. And, and thank you, Simon, for what you've shared already. Um, I guess uh, I ended up doing a PhD, which after uh, an attempt to do something else, ended up being a study of the Baptist Union uh, and uh, its period of renewal and change in the 1990s. Uh, that story ended up being in the way that, in the places that I focused, being a very kind of male dominated story. Those who were uh, making the decisions, uh, uh, those were the voices that were heard, were almost uh, entirely men. Um, and uh, unlike Simon, I've never, I guess I never had that moment of shifting from one perspective of could women be ministers or not. I've always kind of accepted it. But like some of us, I didn't have as much experience of that uh, growing up, but it was always something I accepted. So I guess I came to the end of the PhD and said, there must be other stories. Well, I knew there were other stories. And I, I guess part of what I've wanted to do since then is, is try and tell some of those stories. And one of those stories is, is how women during that period of the 1990s became a much more, uh, well, had to struggle for a lot more visible uh, and for a voice, which has begun to change uh, since the 2000s. Great. Thank you for that background, Andy. Um, I think it's going to be helpful if we now loop back and try and take the story um, from its, its beginnings. Um, I wonder, Simon, could you start us off on, on the story? Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, this is uh, drawing on a bit of the research I did for Baptist Union Council. Um, gosh, I don't know, nearly 15 years ago now uh, when I was part of council and I was asked to produce a paper telling the story of women in Baptist ministry. And I think that's that's still available to buy uh, as a publication through the Baptist Union. Uh, I, I kind of pick up the story in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, the thing that struck me is that it begins, as uh, things so often do in Baptist life, with an argument more about money than about theology. Uh, in 1926, there was a special committee of the Baptist Union, and it was reported at this committee that three women had been received as accredited Baptist ministers. Uh, their names, uh, some of them are familiar to us, their names are Mrs. M. Living Taylor, Miss Edith Gates and Miss Violet Hedger. The problem was that Miss Gates was receiving a grant from what was then called the Sustentation Fund to the extent of £33 per year. Uh, the notes of the meeting state that a great discussion took place concerning the general question of the admission of women into Baptist ministry, and apparently many views were expressed, and I've read minutes along those lines over the years in other contexts too. Um, it was generally felt that when the sustentation fund had been launched to, you know, pay stipends to ministers under certain uh, contexts, this is what we now would call the Home Mission Fund, um, the assembly that launched it did not even contemplate the idea that some of the recipients might one day be female ministers. And so they needed to refer to the solicitor of the union to ask if it was permissible under the trustee for the fund to pay this grant to Miss Gates. And if not, her case might be needed to be treated in a different way and maybe a grant made from another fund. 
So two interesting points, I think, are worth highlighting from these committee minutes. The first is that by the time the committee met in 1926, there were already three women on the probationers list with two of them already in pastoral charge of churches. That's really significant to hold on to. The second is that the debate, insofar as it's recorded at least, seems primarily to be concerned with issues regarding whether women in ministry could receive a stipend from the fund. It wasn't a debate about what the Bible says about women in leadership. Uh, the wider context here, of course, is a world where women have only just been given the vote in national elections, and also a world where women have until very recently been prohibited from owning property in their own right, for example. So the concern about the money from the funds needs to be heard in that wider social context. It's also worth noting that the council taking these discussions would have been entirely comprised of men, naming it for what it was, this was a room full of men discussing whether a woman could be paid for the work that she's already doing. We need to let that fact sit with us, as in our time, we still, I think, sometimes end up having discussions about people who are not allowed to fully take their seat at the table. The BU Council in February 1926 received a report from the Committee Regarding the Admission of Women in the Baptist Ministry which called for council to regularise the situation of women in terms of privileges and benefits. It did not call council to have a theological debate. However, the committee report then goes on to make the following statement of its own position. It says, the committee is clear that it would be contrary to Baptist belief and practice to make sex a bar to any kind of Christian service. But then the committee report seeks to draw a line between a call to ministry on the one hand and entry onto the accredited list on the other. They're clear that the decision to call a woman to ministry rests with the local church. And on the basis of Baptist congregational freedom, the committee are able to affirm that call. However, entry onto the accredited list carries with it a further level of privilege. And it's on this matter that things seem to get stuck. And I do just want to note that we still live with such complexities regarding local church practice and national accreditation today. The issue under debate in 1926 was not, it seems, primarily the Ministry of Women. The committee recognised that there are already women in ministry amongst the churches of the Union and it was not seeking to have this reversed. The issue for consideration at Council is whether women should be allowed the benefits of being on the accredited list. In other words, it's a question of money, power and status. It boils down, of course, to a question about whether someone who is a woman in ministry is a second class of minister to her male colleagues. Anyway, fast forward to 1967, and we find a Baptist Union of Great Britain report, Women in the Service of the Denomination, offering a stern warning which echoes down the decades to the current debate on women in ministry. They suggest that, uh, and this is quoting from the report, Baptists need to think carefully again about their doctrine of the ministry and the meaning they ascribe to ordination, lest they be guilty of practical injustice as well as theological confusion. Many believe the present objection to women ministers in Baptist circles is based on feeling rather than reason. So says the BGB report in 1967. Fast forward again to 1975 and the next milestone in Baptist Union Council's consideration of the issue of women in Baptist ministry is to be found in the discussions of the ending of the Baptist Deaconess movement. 
since 1890, women had served Baptist churches as deaconesses. This was a role which initially involved social work and visitation, and my own church in central London had many deacons through this period. However, uh, the nature, uh, deaconesses, sorry, during this period, the nature of the role had developed over the decades, and it, it became increasingly clear that functionally many of these deaconesses were now, in effect, functioning as pastors of churches. And as with the initial debate regarding the admission of women to the accredited list, Council once again found itself in a situation where it was having to play catch up, where women were pastoring Baptist churches and yet were unaccredited to do so. And so once again, council had to uh, regularise a reality that already existed amongst the churches. I really hope we're in a different place today, but honestly, sometimes I'm not so sure. But anyway, I think this brings us to the 1980s, and I think it's time for Andy to pick up the story on the basis of some of his research. That's uh, great, Simon. Thank you very much for sketching in those um, early years in the 20th century for us. Um, Andy, would you like to talk a bit about what you uh, discovered in your research? Uh, so again, uh, the focus of mine was was the participation of women in the institutions, things like Simon was talking about the council, uh, but also the Baptist Union, its own offices, its own uh, officers and personnel there in that way. And so I might actually take us back to the beginning of the 20th century again, which is actually there. We also see the creation of something called the Baptist Women's League, um, which was uh, uh, a growing significant movement through most of the 20th century, at least up to the 1980s in which women were encouraged uh, to, to join together in prayer, in service and evangelism. Um, and this was a, a positive thing, uh, but th th perhaps uh, the potential thing that came out of it was that actually because women were kind of sidelined into this specific kind of sphere of work, uh, they were less uh, operating in the places of institutions and power. So it's like, so so alongside the ba Baptist Women's League, you also see the creation of a women's desk or a women's department within the Baptist Union, really sitting under mission. So it sits in that kind of space rather than uh, this place in which there might end up being a quality uh, emerging. So what begins to happen in the 1980s is you begin to see a growing number of Baptist ministers. So Simon talked about the initial three back in the 1920s. There were then a, gra a group of, eight in the 1950s um but it's not until the 1980s or late 1970s that we begin to see another significant group which has begun to grow of women in ministry uh, and these women in ministry began as they became a more sizable group and began to kind of uh i guess talk to one another engage uh, uh, uh together began to advocate for more change uh, and so what we see is when we get to the 1990s uh, the conversation obviously is about women in ministry, and that's a significant one, but it's also about the place of women in Baptist Union Council, uh, in uh, college staff, within the uh, associations in those positions, and within the Baptist Union itself. And see, we see, I think, through that decade, uh, a conscious attempt to uh, to increase the number of, of, of women in all those different spheres. Um, uh, and that that was about women, but it was also about men taking that, that decision to lead as well. So David Coffey and Keith Jones, through their listening days as general secretary and deputy general secretary, uh, listened to the union and listened, I guess, to that voice of women, that summons to be heard, and began uh, uh, to advocate that actually the council needed to change. 
Uh, what we see from the 1990s is the stubbornness, perhaps, of council to that change uh, and several attempts uh, to uh, increase the number of women uh, within the council uh, hit against uh, the buffers and didn't increase. And so it's not actually until uh, a report in 2002 that there is a conscious decision made uh, to have uh, uh, the number of women from the association, but also, um, what's the word, co-opted on, uh, increase. And so we see a significant change by the 2000s. And that I think is about the, the increasing number of women in ministry, uh, but it's also about where we are at the end of the 20th century. And so what we also see again is the beginnings, small as they were of women bec uh, becoming staff members within the colleges. The first one there taking place in 1985. Uh, and then by 1993, each one of the Baptist colleges has a woman on staff. Uh, we also see it within the Baptist Union itself and, and its officers. So that by the beginning of the 1990s, uh, we see a woman uh, 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 holding a brief around social affairs where women had kind of perhaps more administerial roles within the union. Here we had someone in a conscious way. We also see within, it's not just the number of women uh, participating within council, but it's also the positions that they take place, moderating the ministerial recognition community, moderating faith and unity, uh, moderating church relations, moderating mission executive, those kind of places. And so we begin to see uh, this significant Perhaps one thing I should mention, actually, is uh, another thing I think that's crucial to this story changing is uh, Margaret Jarman becoming president of the union uh, in 1987. Uh, there was a woman pres uh, president before that uh, in 1978, who, whose name was Nell, Nell Alexander. Uh, but she was a laywoman, very involved in uh, the Baptist Women's League, or I think it had a slight different name by then. Uh, but it's actually Margaret Jarman, I think. Her profile... Uh, and uh, those gathering around her begin to see this change, slow as it was, because the next woman president isn't until 2006 and Kate Coleman, big difference. So we got another 20 years, but we begin to see some change so that by the time I get to the end of my research, which is around kind of, uh, well, it was around 2018, 2019, when we were celebrating 100 years of Violet Hedger, things were in slightly different place uh, in in. Uh, I, I, I leave the end of my article saying there's still much progress to be made, but we are in a better place. And actually, even since I finished that article, uh, we have seen uh, a large increase of women becoming regional ministers, um, which I think is an encouraging sign. Great. Thank you, um, Andy, for bringing that, uh, that story up to date. Um, Simon, you've, you've described yourself as a, as a historian, um, and uh, I know Andy's very committed to history as well. And I guess one of the things we notice in the way we tell our history are the voices that are absent, perhaps the voices that we're not hearing. Have you got any reflections on that in relation to what we've just been discussing? Yeah, I, I think those who study the role of women uh, in society more generally, including institutions such as churches, um, would want to draw our attention to what is often called um, the question of intersectionality. Uh, this is a word used to describe those who inhabit multiple places of exclusion and oppression. And you know, whilst we've made great progress, I think, through the last 100 years in, in having women uh, take more of an active role in, in, in alongside men in, on an equal basis within the denomination, um, most of those women have been women who have uh, certain other characteristics that are powerful. So they will be, for example, most of them will be white women. 
And I think we do need to hear more from black women. And I, I want to make particular mention here of my friend Gail Richards, who is emerging in our midst as a significant voice, both as a scholar and a national leader. And there are others uh, who are also uh, beginning to emerge and we need to make sure their voices are heard and amplified and, and not squashed. So I think we need to pay particularly careful attention to female voices where women are still being excluded because of their diversity of essential characteristics. Uh, so this includes not only black women, but I also think those who live with disability and other areas of identity. So I think that's kind of the caveat I want to put on future uh, future conversations, just to make sure we remain alert that we don't end up reproducing the errors of the past, but rather that we can learn from them and do things differently. Thank you. I wonder if I could make an extra comment on, on, on that. And I think, you know, I just said that uh, Margaret Jarman was president in 1987. The second president in 2006 was Kate Coleman. I didn't mention that Kate Coleman was a black minister. Um, and I, I, you know, I think in my ref in my memory, but in, in the reflections that she had was reflecting again what it was to be a, a woman in that role, but also a black woman within that role. And, and she had some hard things, I think, to say to the union and to the council at the end of her term uh, that I guess continue needs to be heard. I guess the other thing is, 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 is there are other, other intersections which I've become much more aware of as well. So I, you know, I have a colleague uh, or a friend, uh, Lee Greenwood, who's been reflecting on not just uh, uh, being a woman in ministry, but being a mother in ministry as well. Uh, and so actually there's a lot more going on in terms of, uh, of women who might be single or married uh, and whether they're mothers or not mothers, uh, grandmothers, all those different kind of roles in a way that I guess doesn't isn't part, so much a reflection for those who are male in ministry. Uh, it, and, and I think those there are extra things going on often for women in ministry um, and women in life in general um, that perhaps we need to pay more attention or be more aware of. And I think often it's, it, it is that it is the women saying, actually, we need to be heard. Our experience needs to be registered, which I think is why Project Violet is such an important project to be taking place at this time. Hmm. Thank you both for those voices you've 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 queued in. Yes, you you will be hearing more from those voices um, as we release the findings yeah, of, of Project I, Violet. I'm I'm just very conscious that we've we've had a podcast um, chaired by a woman, but featuring uh, featuring two white men. So <laughs> I just want to note the incongruity of that, and I hope we've made a valuable contribution. But recognizing that there are limitations uh, built into systems and podcasts such as this as well, which which need you know further consideration. Thank you for that. Now, if um, people's appetite uh, about Baptist history has been whetted by listening into this conversation, um, I think, Andy, you just happened to be running a course on Baptist history. Would you like to tell, tell us a little bit about it? Yes, that'd be, thank you for the opportunity, Helen. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I've been appointed uh, as a lecturer in Baptist history at Regent's Park College to develop some new courses in Baptist history and theology, online courses, uh, master's level. Uh, and we have a module, we're running a pilot at the moment, but we hope to uh, run it again as, as, as a full course uh, next year in, in 2024. Uh, and I think it's a great opportunity, one, to get to grips with our story and our history, uh, including the, the history of women. And we have a particular unit and module which looks in a lot more detail about uh, the role and place of women in, in Baptist history and Baptist life, uh, as well as our broader story, uh, both our story that we tell in, in England and the UK, but also our world story about being Baptist. Uh, and if you're interested in that, do check out the Regents Park College uh, website, in particular the Centre for Baptist Studies, uh, to find out more.
Right. It wouldn't be a podcast without a plug, would it? Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's great. Thank you for uh, contributing that. I just want to thank you both for helping us understand uh, the history that's gone before Project Violet started in 2021. Um, I put a link to um, the booklet that Simon referenced and to Andy's article um, and the link to the course in the episode notes. Uh, but uh, these resources are also available online uh, through the Project Violet website, which is www.projectviolet dot org dot uk thank you for coming and taking part in this episode it's been thank a pleasure you. thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the project violet podcast we invite you to reflect on this episode did you learn anything new or surprising how were you left feeling? The episode notes contain questions you could use in a small group to get a discussion going. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast on the platform you are using so you don't miss out on future episodes. And don't forget to tell others about the Project Violet podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and X, formerly Twitter, and find out more on our website, www.projectviolet.org.uk.